Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Bathsheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, 
he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The New Testament reading for today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. If I haven't got to meet you yet, one of the pastors here. And we are uh, in an Advent series where we are looking at how our desires have been fulfilled in Christ, the longings that we all have, and what that would mean to actually take uh, the newborn king seriously and believe that uh, he has come. But with every Advent series that we do here every year, there, is, there needs to be a caveat. We actually don't think that Christ commands us to celebrate Christmas. It may sound crazy to you, uh, but it is nowhere in Scripture, and we are bound by Scripture alone uh, in this church. It's our conviction that really there are only 52 holidays every year, and it's on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Uh, but we would be, I think, pretty silly and tone-deaf to act like nothing is happening in our culture uh, when everyone is talking about the birth of Christ. What should this really mean? Why is the birth of a little baby in a pig's trough so important? And so that's what we're going to do in our Advent series. And I want us to just consider why that humiliation as we just prayed, why that sort of humiliation for the King of Kings? Let's pray. God, we do praise you for this day, uh, the day that you have set apart that you would be worshipped, and it's on the first day of the week because Christ has been raised and you have given us new life in him. Lord, we pray that you would speak to all of us. You know us better than we know ourselves you know those who are brokenhearted, that they would be comforted. You know those who are hard-hearted, that they would be challenged. Lord, speak to us in the midst of the chaos and distractions and hustle and bustle of Christmas. We ask that your spirit would make us more and more into the image of Jesus, we pray. 
in his name. So this morning we're looking at a passage in 1 Samuel, and let me just set the context uh, for a minute since we're jumping into the middle of this book. This is a book, uh, we're coming on that, the sort of beginning of a new transition for the history of Israel. So the history of Israel is marked and defined by the Exodus. They were saved from Egypt, they were slaves, and they were brought out through this miracle of miracles uh, where God parts the Red Sea, condemns the Egyptians, and they wander through the wilderness for 40 years, and they finally make it into the promised land. And then you have the end of Joshua and Judges, and it's largely chaos. Glimpses of light, glimpses of hope. You have judges, sometimes they are righteous, that they are uh, sort of savior figures to save parts of Israel uh, throughout the book of Judges. Oftentimes they are unrighteous and doing what is, in, uh, what is right in their own eyes. And so we see right at the beginning of our passage that the elders of Israel are not going to trust Samuel's sons to continue to be their, their sort of go-to man, their prophet, their access to God. And so they have a specific request. But before I get to the request, I want us to realize this sort of assumption of the text that, that God does uh, respond to Samuel with. And the assumption is they don't realize they have a king. They don't realize what they already have. You see it in God's response there in verse 7 and 8. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. And then he tells Samuel, you shouldn't be surprised because this is, this is their deal. This is what they do. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Israel has repeatedly forsaken the chosen nature of who they are meant to be. To realize the privilege of what it means to be Israel. Let me give you some of those privileges because they are personally chosen. They are supposed to be unique. In Exodus 19, right before he gives us the Ten Commandments and the law, God is on Mount Sinai and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession from all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see that personal, beloved nature that Israel is called to? He says it all over. He says it also in Deuteronomy, through the words of Moses, right as they're about to enter the promised land, there are all these reminders. Remember, Israel, who you are. In chapter 4, he says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us 
whenever we call upon him. The Lord our God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven, the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. But remember, don't be drawn to worship them like everybody else does. Don't be like all the other peoples. But the Lord has taken you. He has brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Did any people, this is all still Deuteronomy 4, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And this is also true of the church, the new Israel. It's most clear in 1 Peter because he basically quotes the passage from Exodus 19. 1 Peter is a book in the New Testament written to the church, to those who are in Christ. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. We have a king, a victor, a leader, a champion. Do we realize what good that is? Do we realize the privilege of what we have? Behold what we have been given. What Israel had been given, they took for granted. And so their desire is to reject the king they have. So in the passage, we see it very uh, clearly. They come to Samuel, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And at first you should think, what's the big deal about that question? We're told way back in Genesis 17, part of the promise to Abraham, there's going to be kings coming from you. You're going to be a multitude of many nations and kings will come from your seed, Abraham. Deuteronomy 17 also says what it's going to be like, what a king should be once there is one over Israel. He should follow the law, write a book of this law and meditate on it day and night. You're going to have a king and you should worship God according to his leadership. It is true that they need a king. And you could say it's a, their right to, to ask for a king. So what's the big deal? Why does God find this so offensive? Well, it feels a little bit like Satan quoting scripture. You know, Satan knows scripture. He quotes it to Jesus in the temptation. But he quotes it with a total upside down focus on what Jesus can get out of this word. Don't be, don't be twisted, misguided by just the fact that we have certain knowledge. We can quote scripture. That means... We've got it right. They can quote scripture, even 
Their demand is almost a quote, direct quote from Deuteronomy. But they want a king to serve themselves, not God. They want a king to serve themselves, not God. Did you see after they received that warning from Samuel, they said, no, there shall be a king over us. Now they're just declaring things. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The battle's no longer the Lord's. It's their battle. They want to set the terms. They want to be like everyone else. They want the worldly strength and the worldly pomp and circumstance. They don't want to depend on God. They don't want to be humble and have to rely on the Lord. They want to be like everyone else. Sound familiar? It should sound familiar if we're honest with ourselves, right? We have this this covetousness of, man, the world seems to have it pretty good. Maybe I can have one foot in each camp. Maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. I can be like everyone else and be a Christian. Psalm 73 is a great example of this kind of envy. He talks about how he was tempted to just deny God because he sees all of this unrighteous around him prospering. And he thinks, what's all this for? Doesn't God see? Where are you, God? And it's not until he comes into the sanctuary, comes into the temple and remembers who the real God is that he says, no. I will not forsake you. Is Christmas an even worse temptation for us than the rest of the year to become like everyone else? Do we want that hallmark perfect Christmas? Maybe it is for you. It's not really for me, honestly. (laughs) Sorry. Samuel gives them this warning of what a king will be like. Did you get that warning? God says, go tell them what a king will be like, what he's going to do. And what is that king going to do? He's going to take and take and take. And then he's going to appoint for himself and appoint for himself more of you to serve his ends. And then he's going to make you his slaves. This is what the king will do. It's a pretty good preview of basically the rest of the Old Testament. He will make you his slaves. And they get that warning and they say, no, that's what we want. That's what we want. And before you laugh at them, you should see yourself in them. We have the warnings, don't we? 
of what sin is? Think about it for yourself. The, the, the big sins that you struggle with. You know that they're wrong, don't you? Don't you know that they're not going to give you what they promised, that they're going to take and take and take? We even have tropes about covetousness. The grass is always greener. We know that the gra- that's a lie, but we're going to covet anyway. We know that the more money we have, the more temptation we're going to have to rely on ourselves, but we're going to work ourselves to the bone for it. That the more worldly influence and recognition and power, the more that we have of that, the more we're going to be tempted to rely on ourselves and not believe that God is the Lord of the universe. But we still go after it. Don't we? You cannot say that you have not been warned. God gives us the dignity of being sinners. What I mean by that is he gives us the dignity of having responsibility. We are without excuse So the problem is what? If we have the warning, the problem is that we want it. We like our sin, don't we? We like to flirt with it and treat it kind of nicely, but not too deeply. I know oftentimes we make excuses or we feel trapped Maybe you are in that situation now. You just feel enslaved to it. You have the dignity to always say no. You have that ability. So just admit, stop making excuses. You've been given the warnings over and over. You have the knowledge. You don't have to make excuses anymore. You can confess like we do every week. This is a picture of what we do. And we need to see how personal, how foolish and offensive sin is to God. Because he is saying, you are a chosen nation. A treasured possession. And if you follow after sin... It will make you its slave. And so they do what we do, and they say, no, we, we prefer slavery. We want to go back to Egypt, which is what they also said in other places. We want to go back to Egypt. So what does God do in this instance? He gives them a king. He gives them Saul. That's that last phrase. It's getting set up for the anointing of Saul. Go every man to his city. Go get ready. Gather the people. We're going to have a ceremony. I'll give you what you want. And he does that to us. Not always, but sometimes. He gives us over to what we want. Gives us over to our desires. It's very explicit in Romans 1. And it's 
described as a kind of wrath of God when he gives us what we want. Not a blessing. A judgment, a condemnation. One way to think of it is if you have your best case scenario, you may not be blessed. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, a diver at Yale was, was giving her testimony at our athletes' ministry, and she was describing this moment that she had when they had just won uh, conference championships. She was dating this guy that she really liked. She was at this party, and she had all the friends that she wanted, and she was on top, and she was at Yale, right? It's it like you are on the top of the world. And then it hit her. Is this all there is? Could this be all that there is? I had a very similar thing was told to me uh, by a guy who was leading devotions with the New England Patriots back when they were good. And uh, <laughs> sorry. And, and a number of journalists asked him while they were like waiting around the locker room, how are you getting these, these millionaire athletes to come to your Bible study? It like, seems so pathetic to have a Bible study with the NFL players, right? And his response was, I think they realized that if they peak at 25, it's not much of a life. If this is all that you can get, man, there better be something more. So sometimes God has to give us over to what we want to show us that. To break our pride. To break our pride. The Old Testament, he goes on, gives him Saul. Saul very quickly fails. But then it becomes pretty clear that we need a different type of king. The Old Testament is filled. David, David is better than Saul. He's a man after God's heart. He shows humility for a few chapters. And then it really uh, doesn't go well. They need a different type of strength. The Old Testament is filled with revelation after revelation. We just don't get it. But we just, it's not going to work by our own strength. If he leaves us to ourselves, we're going to destroy ourselves. It has to be upside down. It has to be through humility. And that's what we see in Christmas. That's what we see in the king being humiliated. The way that God will save you will be in and through humility. Not through pride. Not through worldly power and recognition. It has to be through humility. Now why do I say that? Well, not only will the prideful sort of worldly pursuit destroy us as we see throughout the Old Testament, but this is the way that God is going to lead us out of ourselves. Because he's got to get us out of ourselves. Israel was caught up in their battle, in what they wanted, and what they thought they needed. 
But the biggest thing that we need is to be humbled. He starts off the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what we need. We need more and more occasions to be humbled. Not to be prideful. Not to be boastful. There's no more boasting in the Christian life. Boasting doesn't make sense for the Christian. When Paul talks about grace, his conclusion is, now there is no more boasting. And that's why we read that song from Mary. Unless we are too Protestant and forget about Mary, Mary is very important. Because she is a prime example of what it means to be a Christian. Because don't forget who Mary is. Mary is a teenage girl with no power, with no worldly credentials, whose husband-to-be, who she's engaged to Joseph, but once he finds out she's pregnant, wants to divorce her or get rid of her out of disgrace because she must have gotten pregnant illegitimately. That's who Mary is. And that's the one that we should repeat and sing just like her. My soul magnifies the Lord And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The humble estate, the humiliation of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. There's a reason that this song is such a famous song in the history of Christianity. If you study church music, this song is everywhere because this is the song of a Christian. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has exalted those who were humiliated by the world. Lest we forget in this celebration of Christmas, the real advent of Christ was humiliating and countercultural and surprising. Let us never forget that. Whatever else we make Christmas out to be, that at least is what Jesus' coming is meant to be about. It has to be that. Because then notice what a humble king coming to those who are humble now does. It frees us. It frees us from all of those slave masters. It frees us from comparison. Why do I have to compare my worldly success to someone else, my looks, my whatever? It's all vanity. Christ, the king of the world, has welcomed me to his throne and has given me a new nature. Why in the world would I get caught up in comparing myself to others? We should laugh at sin now. It should look so foolish. Freeze us so that we can listen to Romans 12 and where he says, do not be conformed to this world. We are able to approach God and offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. It frees us from expecting 
worldly power, worldly strength, worldly recognition. And if you're freed from it, it's not going to enslave you. It's going to influence you, sure. I'm, you know, we don't have to be idealistic. It's gonna, you're going to struggle with it, sure. But you can be freed from its worry, from its slavery. Because the king has humbled himself that you who are humbled may come to him. That's the good news. That's the good news of Christmas. That we need to actually have our pride broken because then we can come into the hands of God. The only condition he has in us coming to him is to realize that we cannot meet any condition. That's it. That really is it. That's why the gospel really is so free. Why we can offer it to literally anyone. Because he comes being humiliated that anyone can come to him. This is what we get to sing about. Because in any other worldview or philosophy, a humble King of kings is an oxymoron. Doesn't make sense. But it is the heart of Christianity. I was reminded of this song. Some of you may know it. It's a psalm that I, not a psalm, a a hymn that I heard through Indelible Grace, if you know that group. Come, ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, which is an old word for wait, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners, Jesus came to call. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder that you show yourself and save us in Christ after all of the rebellion and all of the ways that we forsake you, all the ways that we run after those who are going to enslave us, and yet you still love us, you still pursue us, you are still willing to be humiliated for us. Open our eyes to see that, Lord, that we may truly rejoice that affliction when it comes, Lord, we would be able to endure because we know we are secure in your hands. We have nothing else that we need to boast in. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.